Psalm 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you at a time of distress. The rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sports have their own languages, don't they? They have their own vocabularies. For example, there's this phrase in one sport called the five hole. Now, does anyone know what sport the five hole comes from? I'll tell you a hint. It's not golf. Anyone know what sport? Raise your hand if you know. Yeah, I know. I figured that Johnny would know back there. <laughs> yeah, it comes from hockey. And it's basically a reference to, you know, you shoot around the goalie in that net, and there are different zones you can hit. And the five hole is where you shoot it right between the legs of the goalie. The goalie leaves his leg open, boom, you shoot it in the five hole. It's part of hockey. I've been coming interested, more interested in hockey, been watching it. I never know if I need to move to Canada, so I might as well get used to uh, the sport up there. Now, do you know what they call the penalty box in hockey? They have a little nickname for the penalty box. Anybody know what that is? The sin bin. Look at you. You're a good group back there. It's always the sinners in the way in the back to get all the answers right. The sin bin, right? They call the penalty box. You get in trouble in hockey, you have to go in that little box. It's very, it's, it's very nice. So they call it the sin bin. Now, sin is a funny word, isn't it? It always sounds like a word that should be said by a southerner. Sin. You know, it's got that kind of twang to it. But you hardly ever hear like the biblical understanding or meaning of sin when it's talked about in our culture. Right? You never really hear the real nature of sin. Because if you think about it in the Bible, right, sin, if you think about it deeply, sin is ultimately not being like God. 
not thinking like God, not living as God has called us to be, not having the same mind. Now, sometimes we make sin as something we do, and of course it is an action. It could be an omission as well. But really, sin is bigger than that. Sin is being other than God or being unlike God. J.C. Ryle described holiness as this. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. Sin is the opposite. It's not having the mind and the heart of God. You don't really hear much about that understanding of sin. Most of the time, when you hear of sin in our culture, it is in kind of trivial ways, right? The, the sin bin in the hockey, right? Oh, look at this. It's a, you know, or you invest in tobacco stocks or oil stocks or alcohol stocks. What are you doing? You're investing in sin stocks. If the government taxes those very same things, well, those are sin taxes, there are fashion sins. Apparently, you're not supposed to wear Ugg boots outside your house. They're supposed to be only indoors. I did not know that. But there, people talk about making fashion faux pas, fashion sins. You can find lists of the top fashion sins. I'm sure I break many of them. And sometimes in our culture, sin is even used in an enticing way, right? Something you want to do. Something enticing, you know, it's almost like, here's a good way to advertise it. Call it a sin. I even found a recipe for chocolate sin pie. I bet it's good, right? Whatever happened to sin? Whatever happened to that old understanding of sin? People used to say, you know, God is dead. That was the big thing to say. But really, sin is dead. That's what's kind of dead in our culture, that really kind of old biblical way of understanding sin. It's dead. But nature hates a vacuum. We all know that. So something has to fill that void in our culture, in our lives. And what has done that? What has filled the void of sin? Well, I think Jonathan Bales gets at this. He wrote an article in the Center for pastoral theologians, he wrote an article entitled, The Liturgy of the Guilty. And this is what he wrote in that article. He said, call it an age of outrage. Call it a culture of contempt. Call it a politics of polarization. Whatever phrase you happen to use, there's little denying the prevalence of the spirit of moral judgment and mutual indignation in our public life today. Indeed, it seems impossible to escape. It pervades our social media feeds. It permeates the tone of journalists and professional pundits. It seeps into our everyday conversations with friends and colleagues. We are a nation divided by deep disagreements, but it's more than that. He concludes, because the real conviction underlying our hostility and anger is that those with whom we disagree are not simply wrong. They are wicked. They aren't just mistaken. They are contemptible. We live in the age of outrage. Sin is dead, and outrage has filled that void. It allows for us to still engage in what sin used to do, right? It allows us to engage in societal or communal moral indignation over something, to hold people accountable in ways. I was just listening to uh, the Hidden Brain podcast this week. They were replaying uh, this episode about creating God. And this person here, this professor, was talking about the naturalistic explanation, the evolutionary explanation for why religion was created, all right, from that viewpoint. And it was simply this that as, you know, we lived in little groups of 50 people, and as we got into bigger and bigger societies, well, you needed some type of mechanism 
to keep people in control, right? As communities got bigger, as people got more distant from one another, it was harder to maintain that little kind of tight community control. And so we created religion because we needed someone to come after bad people to make them behave. We needed eBay ratings, right? That's really what it is. How do you monitor on eBay? I sell some stuff on, buy stuff on eBay. I want a good rating. I want people to say good things about me. And it's posted there on the website. How good am I? You know, how do people respond to me? Well, that's kind of what this guy was saying about religion. Well, it was developed as a kind of an eBay rating to regulate human behavior. We need something to do that. And so as our culture has thrown off Sin as the option and God as the option is, is exchanged it for this model of outrage. Outrage is how we'll hold people accountable in society. And what I want to argue this morning is I think that model is ultimately flawed. And I think it's unhealthy. I certainly think it's unbiblical, as I will argue, but I think it's unhealthy and I think it's flawed. And I think it's flawed for two reasons. The outrage model. The first one is this. The outrage model lacks introspection. It lacks introspection. And I think that is bad for us. Let me explain why to you. And let me do it by a chart. If you could throw up that first chart. Napoleon, uh, one of my favorite generals of all time, said, A good sketch is better than a long speech. I'm guessing most of you would agree with that, that a good sketch is better than a long sermon. So take a look at this. This is the outrage dynamic here presented for you on this chart. And it's flawed because if you look at that, what it does is it takes away the introspection of looking inside ourselves first. It, it immediately has a reaction of looking at the problem as if the problem is out there. It's someone else is the problem. Something else, something external to myself is the problem. And that can be unhealthy. Take, for example, the issue and phrase that's used a lot right now in our vernacular, and that is systemic racism. Now, systemic racism is real. It's empirically verifiable. We all know about redlining. We all know about de facto segregation. And even in our own school systems, the way we have taxes structured, all of these things, right? There is a thing called systemic racism. But the danger is it allows you in some ways to put the problem outside yourself. To say, look, the problem is systemic racism. Look, it's out there. And even our politicians do that, even in our own city, right? Problem systemic racism. Well, who is the system? Who creates the system? Who operates the system? Who works in the system? It's us, right? So there's this danger about externalizing this outrage, making the problem entirely out there. And then there's that other part that's dangerous in this model, that's flawed about it, is that it tends to put the virtue in here. If the problem's out there, and I'm pointing my finger at it, well, then I'm good, man. I'm okay, and, and the righteousness and the virtue is here because I'm calling it out in other people what is wrong. And so it creates what I think here the result I have is the condemnation of others while simultaneously exonerating ourselves. Now, I'm using generalizations here, so I always need to be careful when I do that, right? There's a simplicity to what I'm saying that can lead into error, so let me clarify. There are indeed problems out there. 
Right, let's not deny that truth, right? There are problems out there, and there also is a place for outrage over those problems. That is good and right and true. But when that becomes the model to process everything, it becomes unhealthy. And I also would like to point out that, you know, this isn't a cultural problem. This has been the church's problem for generations. Like, we invented this stuff, right? We're the best at it. We were the innovators of pointing the finger at sin outside without looking inside to ourselves. There's a reason Jesus has that saying about the speck and the plank, right? We were the first ones. We are the, or, we are the origin story of this outrage model. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by, for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. That's a good description of the church. You can take that uh, chart down now. So the first problem I have with, the first flaw is it lacks introspection. It leads to unhealthy dynamics. The second problem with this outrage model is it lacks a forgiveness mechanism. It lacks a way to be forgiven, to be restored, to find uh, repentance and reconciliation. It only knows how to judge, how to banish, how to expel. It doesn't know how to redeem. And I think that's unhealthy as well. It's unhealthy nationally. It's unhealthy interpersonally. It's unhealthy personally and individually. Self-exoneration is a ruse it's self-denial and condemnation without forgiveness or repentance or restoration or out a path for that is self-destructive. That's the outrage model. That's the model our culture has adopted, and, but the Bible offers a different model, a very different model. And that's what I want to look at, particularly uh, here in Psalm 32, because here's where we find that biblical model, the alternative to the outrage model, the biblical model of dealing with this. We find it in Psalm 32. We find it with David. So let's take a little look at that psalm. Now, one Old Testament scholar had a great little comparison about Psalm 32, how to approach this psalm. If you think about the penitential psalms, uh, we have Psalm 51, which is a classic one, right? I preached on it at um, Ash Wednesday. It is a psalm of David, right? And then we have this Psalm 32, which is also a psalm of David, also a penitential psalm. And what this Old Testament scholar did is took those two and contrasted them, what they're really about. If you take Psalm 51, it's about David's response in the midst of the crisis, right? He's right there in his sin. This is his first reaction, his crying out, his lamentation, his wrestling with sin. But then we come to Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is like David's contemplation of what happened. His looking back on it with some retrospect. His looking back on it like an after-action report about what happened, how it played out in his life. And what he's trying to do here in Psalm 32 is to teach us, to teach us what he learned from his experience so that we could grow in God. And what he does in the psalmist teaches three things. He teaches us three things, and in those three things, we find this biblical model. This is a didactic psalm. It is a psalm of wisdom where David teaches us, teaches us three things. The first is this. In Psalm 32, David teaches us that introspection, we need it. We need introspection to be healthy. 
That's what David teaches in the psalm. We need to look inward. We need to have self-reflection and self-examination to be healthy. You see it in the psalm. In verse 3, he talks about having ill health. Really physically ill. He says in verse 3, When I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. When he was avoiding the topic, when he was avoiding looking at it and dealing with it, he fell ill. It was unhealthy. He was unwell. And then David acknowledged it. He looked in himself. He saw who the sinner was. He saw what the sin was. He engaged in introspection, acknowledgement, and confession. You see it in verse 5 of the psalm. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He spoke it. He looked inward, and he spoke it. And you'll notice he uses three different nouns in the Hebrew to describe sin. In that one verse, right? He doesn't say it just once. He uses three nouns. He uses the word translated into English, sin, iniquity, and transgression. He repeats it with using three different words. Sin, that word means in the Hebrew, basically missing the mark. As if you were shooting an arrow and you missed the target, right? That is a description of sin, falling short of the glory of God. And then he uses the word iniquity. That means to bend and twist a little bit. Isn't that true of how we often engage in sin? Just a little bit of bending the rules. And then he uses the word transgressions. And that means to rebel. To rebel against authority. To rebel against the authority of the universe. God himself. So David acknowledges as he looks at himself. He sees all these aspects of sin. And he offers up this full-orbed confession of sin. He's honest with himself. You see, we have to uncover our sins but through introspection in order to have them covered. Mark Futato puts it this way, our sins can be covered only if we don't try to hide it. It's one of the ironies. You want your sins covered, you have to uncover them. And the way we do that is by engaging in honest introspection of ourselves. David calls us to end the self-deception, end the self-righteousness, to stop lying to ourselves. John teaches this in his first epistle, 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Is the truth in you? Are you being honest with yourself? Are you being honest with God? about who you are before him. David says, you want to be healthy. That's what you do. You engage in this honest introspection before God. That's the first thing he teaches us. The second thing he teaches us is that we need forgiveness to be happy. We need forgiveness to be happy. Introspection to be healthy, forgiveness to be happy. This psalm is about David's personal experience, but it's more than that. Right? He's teaching others. He's giving us a universal application for all people. And we see it in verses 1 and 2. He begins the psalm with this kind of conclusion of what he has learned. And he applies it to all of us. He says, happy. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Happy. 
Blessed, some translations have it. You should recognize this because we just had a sermon on the Beatitudes. This is a Beatitude. It's a declaration of blessedness, of shalom, of human thriving, of being blessed and being happy. Well, how do you get there? David says through forgiveness, through knowing forgiveness in your life. That's how you become happy. And he uses three verbs here. He used three nouns for sin. He uses three verbs for forgiven. One is forgiven itself. Two is covered. And three is imputes no. So in verses one and two, he uses these three verbs to describe the forgiveness. Forgiven means to have your sins lifted and carried away. A burden taken off of you. Covered means exactly what you think. To have it concealed from the sight, particularly the sight of the Lord. And then imputes, or in this case, not imputes means to have something not counted against you any longer. So just as he describes his sin in this full-orbed way, he also describes the forgiveness in this full-orbed way, and he teaches us forgiveness is necessary for happiness. We need forgiveness to be happy. That's the second thing he teaches us. But of course, that begs the question, how do we get that forgiveness? If that's the key to human happiness, how do we get it? Well, third, he teaches us this third point, we need God. We need God. You see, David got out of himself, right? He, he looked inward, but he got out of himself. He went somewhere with his problem, verses 5 and 6. Then I acknowledge my sin to you, to God. And I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all, and again, he's speaking to all of us, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. He took his sins somewhere. He found sin inside himself, but he went to God and he found something else. He found forgiveness. He found deliverance. He found righteousness. He found hope. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me, David says. You preserve me, God, from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance, of salvation. David declared that God saved him from his sins. You see, beloved, you have to take out the garbage. We all know this, right? You have garbage Take it out. Have you ever had your garbage service interrupted? It's not fun, right? <laughs> because the stuff stacks up and, you know, it, it doesn't smell good. And the longer it stays there, particularly if it's hot outside, it ain't pretty, right? You want to do something, you need to take out the garbage. Some of you might remember the Mabro 4000. <laughs> Some of you are old like me. Maybe this will ring a bell. Back in 1987, off of Long Island, there was this massive garbage barge with 3,186 tons of garbage on it. And it sat off of Long Island. Nobody wanted to take it. It went down the, you know, the eastern seaboard there. Nobody wanted this thing. It was a big news story. Every day you got to see the barge sitting there you know, on the news. Nobody wanted the garbage. Who wants garbage? Particularly, who wants your garbage? God does. David says God wants you to come. He wants you to come to him and bring your garbage to him. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says, bring it to me. I got a way to deal with this. I can help you to deal with this. Come to me. You need to bring it to him. What are you doing with the garbage in your life? Is it stacking up there like on that barge? Is it, is it stinking? Is it rotting within you? Or are you kind of putting it on other people, like trying to get rid of it, harming those who live in your circle of influence because you can't handle what's going inside of you, so you're putting it on those you love or people you're interacting with? What are you doing with your garbage? You can't outsource it other than to God. David teaches us we must go to God. Now that's the biblical model to deal with these things. David gives it to us right here in Psalm 32. And if we embrace that model, we get very different dynamics in our lives. So let's take another look at a chart here. Chart number two, hopefully saving us again some time. This is the forgiveness dynamic. This is the biblical model. What does it do? Well, it inverts the whole deal, right? The first step is looking for the problem in here instead of out there, right? And then in turn, it's looking for righteousness, looking for virtue outside of ourselves, getting outside of ourselves, looking to God, looking for forgiveness and for new life. And what that means is the result is you have self-examination and, and introspection, a healthy form of it, and you have external or divine forgiveness and exoneration. It's a healthier model. It's the biblical model. Now again, just like I said before, generalizations are always dangerous. So let me just make a couple of little uh, qualifications here. Introspection can be uh, really end up as self-absorption, right? It can go wrong at times. It can lead to ignoring the world around us. So we need to be careful about that. We need to have guardrails on that. And looking outside yourself for virtue or vindication or exoneration can sometimes be merely an excuse. To excuse your behavior. So when we use this model, we must remember that full-orbed acknowledgement, confession, repentance, transformation, walking in new ways of life. But this is the biblical model. This is the model David gets us, and it's a better model, and it leads to one other benefit. If you really believe this, if you really experience it, you might just treat other people differently. Maybe treat others with a little more charity. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ has forgiven you. This model has a pay it forward type of benefit to it. It should lead us to be more charitable. You can take that one down as well. So the bottom line is this. If you want to be healthy, if you want to be happy, be blessed, you need introspection, you need honesty, you need acknowledgement, you need confession, you need forgiveness, you need external exoneration, you need deliverance and righteousness from God, you need God, and more particularly, you need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ, because Christ is our pardon. It is through a relationship with Jesus Christ that we know these things of which David spoke of. You see, Psalm 32 is not just didactic, it's also prophecy. 
Here in this psalm, David plants the seeds that mature into the flower of the glory of Jesus Christ, his person and his work. This is a song about Jesus, the one who came for what reason? To save his people from their sins. Think about Jesus and the psalm. And think about it by going back to those three verbs for forgiveness for a moment. Happy are those whose sins are forgiven. Remember what that meant. To be lifted up. To be carried away. That's what forgiveness is like. It's having this sense of being unburdened of your sins. Of having someone take them away. Sins are heavy. Guilt is heavy. Jesus bore our sins. Jesus was lifted up. For us. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he proclaimed this. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. Christ was lifted up. He's carried away the burden of our sins. He is our part. Think about that second verb for forgiveness. Happy are those whose sin is covered. To have it covered, to conceal it from sight. In the Old Testament, Moses was ordered and instructed to build a covering for the ark. A covering that was known as the mercy seat. A covering that was known as the place of atonement. Here is where atonement is made. In Romans 3, 24 and 25, Paul tells us Jesus is that covering. He is that mercy seat. He is that place of atonement where the blood of Christ covers our sins. Christ is our pardon. And that third verb. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. That he does not count it against us. 2 Corinthians 5.19 In Christ, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Praise be to God. And it's even better than that, because there's this thing called double imputation. Because it's not only that God doesn't count our sins against us, but he counts to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's what Luther called the great exchange. It's what theologians call double imputation. It's a glorious truth. It's the greatest deal ever given. And it's given in glory through Jesus Christ to those who will come to him. Christ died so that your sins would not be counted against you. And that his righteousness would be counted in your favor. Christ is your pardon. But you got to come to him. You got to take out the garbage, right? You got to do what David says. You got to look in yourself. You've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to acknowledge it and name it and bring it to him and confess it to him. When I was a teenager and I was living a life that was not pleasing to God, I remember in my room, I would do this little deal where I would read verses of the Bible as payback to God. I'm going to pay you back because I messed up. And then one day I heard the gospel. And it changed my life. And I realized it's not about paying God back. 
It's about God paying for it. Paying for it in Jesus Christ. And that changed my life. It changed how I live. It changed who I was. That's what Christ does for people. He is your pardon. So this morning, come with me. Let's walk through this together, this time of confession, this lessons of David. Let's do it through the glory of liturgy. You can see we changed our liturgy this morning. We're now going to do our call to confession just to end this sermon because it's all about that. So let us come to this time of liturgy. Let us rehearse these lessons of David and let us meet the Lord Jesus Christ in forgiveness. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 